0: Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. The Bevan Foundation is a Welsh think tank that seeks to create a fair, prosperous and sustainable Wales for all by strengthening public policy. As part of their work, they have recently published a report about the current housing crisis, which is affecting urban centres, as well as rural communities. Joining us today, we've got Steph Evans, head of policy, leading on poverty for the Bevan Foundation. Hello, Steph. Hello, hiya. Hello there. And we've got Hugh Cossan, who is the housing policy officer for the Bevan Foundation. Hello, Hugh. Hi. So before we start about uh, the report, it's important for our listeners to understand one of the key concepts that you focus on, the Local Housing Allowance or the LHA. Would one of you be able to explain what this is, how it works and who's responsible for delivering it?
1: Uh, Local Housing Allowance is the, to put it simply, the means of which someone's housing entitlement is, is calculated if they live in the private rental sector. So if you are claiming housing benefit or or the housing element of universal credit and you live in the private rental sector, um, your your, uh, benefits in in, in that regard are calculated by the uh, local housing allowance. And this is um, legislated by the uh, Department of Working Pensions and the UK government. The allocation changes depending on a number of different factors. So uh, how many bedrooms a person requires. So that depends on their age, um, how many dependents they have, the age of those dependents as well but also uh, the area that they live in. And these, um, these areas are referred to as BRMAs, Broad Rental Market Areas. Um, I'll just say market areas because it's, it's a mouthful otherwise. The LHA is designed to allow someone to afford a house, to rent a house in the cheapest 30% of a given market area. So the, the 30% as, it, as it's often referred to.
0: Uh, so the LHA has undergone uh, reforms recently. Would you be able to explain why this is contributing to the housing crisis in the private rental sector
1: the the LH has undergone a lot of different forms over uh, since the introduction uh, most recently is it was frozen in uh, the end of 2020 2021 period the, the the decision to freeze it was made at the end of 2020 uh, for the following financial year um, meaning that for uh, this financial year and the next financial year the rates are going to be Set at the 30 percentile back in 2020. So the, the, the LHA as it stands now refer, uh, is based on rents that were uh, relevant two years ago rather than rents now. And as I imagine you've probably seen in, in, in the news quite recently or over the past couple of years, rents have gone up quite significantly um, over the pandemic years. The LHA that we have now is quite distant from the LHA that or from the rental markets that existed. Um, two years ago when uh, the, the rates were uplifted again, and we know this is quite likely a bad thing um, because uh, the rents, this is the second time that uh, the LHA has been frozen. It was frozen between 2016 and 2020, um, and in that time, um, there's a fair amount of research that directly links this freeze to a rise in housing, insecurity and a rise of homelessness, And so um, we are more at the start of that freeze in comparison, just to the effects that were at the end of the previous freeze, but we are beginning to see sort of same distance that's occurring between uh, the same gap um, emerging between the LHA and market rents. Um, There are signs that indicate that those uh, households are feeling the same sort of financial pressure that they did uh, during the previous freeze. That
2: gap. really significant so the gap that he was talking about there is really significant but because what it means is that people don't have enough money through their benefits to cover their rent if that happens to you you know what that means is that um you either have to cut back um you know on other things and at the moment we're hearing a lot about the cost of living we're hearing a lot about the cost of gas electric and we're not hearing a lot about the cost of housing in the same way and you know this is all adding to the pressure families are facing or, of course, you end up moving into poorer quality housing, because that's what you can afford, or you're pushed into homelessness. And I think you kind of the, the scale of the problem has been really highlighted in, 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 in the report published today, where we found that the LHA, as he said, should cover 30% of rents, but actually in practice... It covers about three point eight percent of rents, and um, that were advertised in ten Welsh local authorities, and um, in the ten um, that we looked at um, between May and December last year. So it's a big, big gap. It's nowhere near enough, and it's putting real squeeze on families.
0: Obviously, you talked about the BRMA a little bit before Hugh, but would you be able to go into a little bit more depth uh, about that? So obviously, rental costs vary quite widely across the country. This is the method by which the LHA absorbs these variations, right?
1: Yeah, so uh, the, the BRMAs are It's an area in which someone can easily access different facilities. So there's a list of different facilities, such as shopping, healthcare, education, uh, recreation. The, the boundaries of an area are set so that anyone within, a, within that area should reasonably be expected to get to um, different parts of the um, area and access those facilities. You know, if you've got the ma- middle of Snowdonia, in between a local authority, they'll split the local authority up into different BRMAs or for the different geographical landmarks um, or, or, or uh, boundaries, they'll put these BRMAs in place. Um, now, there is a problem with the, the, the way that they set the BRMAs is, is that in that they do often encompass quite varied uh, uh, rental markets within them. So uh, the, the example I use all the time is, is Torvine BRMA, which roughly mirrors the uh, local authority boundaries. Now, with Torvine, you've got quite a a more affluent market in the south, in Cambran, where you've got more of a middle-class professional uh, uh, market, whereas up in in the north of Torvine, you've got Plain Avon, which is a lot lot less affluent. But because it is 1BRMA, and because you can sort of access different facilities uh, equally easy, regardless if you're in the north or the south, then it's 1BRMA. What this means is that you have two quite distinct market areas within this BRMA, which then influences the overall LHA for the area. So if, you know, it, it may be more uh, accessible to live in Avon, but if your local, you know, if your family or your friends or your support network in Cambran, the LHA is, is, is quite often not going to be sufficient to allow you to rent in that area because it is, it, 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 it's weighted because of the Avon rents.
2: Um, I, th- I think it's just one thing to add on that as well is that because of the LHA freeze, but also kind of more broadly because of the way this data is collected. So, uh, as he said, the LHA is set by BRMA. Um, it's set by bedroom size. There isn't an awful lot of shared accommodation or one bed um, homes in a lot of these areas. So, um, so, so that means that. Um, you end up having kind of shared accommodation from a neighbouring authority of neighbouring BRMA being used to determine rents in, in the area, which, you know, is not particularly representative um, kind of, of of what's going on. And there's further data issues around that as well, which um, you might be able to come on to touch on. But because of all those issues, even in areas where historically you might have benefited from this distortion, kind of what's going on in the market. So, you know, if you lived in Blyne Avenue, your family's from Blyne Avenue you might have benefited and be more likely to find a property you can rent that is covered by benefits, the gap is now getting so big that even in those areas, the LHA is not enough to cover rents in many circumstances. So, you know, even even in areas that have historically benefited from from this kind of distortion of the way it's done and now really struggling as well. So it, it is a completely pan Wales problem that, that that we're finding.
0: i draw two of these things together you've talked about, Steph. So you've talked about the gap between the LHA and the rents and data being important. How did you get the data to examine... This question.
2: So, um, he, he did uh, a lot of the, of the donkey work on this to be fair to him. So, um, what we've done is um, looked at properties that were advertised on the rental market um, between May and December last year in of our local authorities. So, his websites such as Right to Move, for example, took all that data off the website. And then we've tried to work out how those rents compare to LHA rates. Now, it's important to note that because we're taking the websites off um, information off the website, we're looking at advertised rents, whereas the LHA is set based on actual rents. So what that means is the rent's agreed between landlords and tenants. So there is there is a difference. But what we were looking at then is kind of if you were looking for a house last summer in one of these 10 local authorities and you were on a low income, what was available for you? And the answer was not a lot.
0: Because often when in competitive markets, you'll get situations where people get into bidding wars with each other and actually that could push the price up through the still, right?
2: Uh, Absolutely, and that's something we heard from. We spoke to a um, a lot of local authority officers across Wales and and indeed people with experience of using the system. And one of the things that we were hearing over and over again from local authority officers were that they had never seen a rental market like it, that they were seeing last year, that houses were going up super, super quickly, properties were vanishing, and people were actually competing with each other to rent, whereas in the past... You you know people were able to maybe kind of take rent up the advertised value or even a little bit below. Now it's actually fairly thin. The the distortion is the other way.
0: Beyond the crazy housing market, why does this gap exist between the LHAs and the rent prices? Hugh, I don't know if you wanted to deal with this.
1: Sure, I I, I suppose one would be the freeze. Um, I think that's quite a significant uh, a, a policy decision that's led to the LHA gap uh, that we're seeing. It's something that's widely acknowledged, it's something that's been widely researched in the pre in the, in the past, that when you have this freeze and it doesn't increase, you're going to see a gap and it's going to impact households. But one of the other core findings from our, our research is that, as mentioned it before, the quality of the data that the LHA is set from is, is, is not where it should be. So the, the LHA itself um, is set by um, rent officers who collect data from from landlords directly in different local authorities. And what they do is they create a big list of all, all the different rents in a given area uh, and they find the 30 percentile from that. What we found though is, is, is that the data set that they're using to calculate the LHA is often quite uh, in, insufficient for the, for, the, for the purposes that they're uh, uh, trying to do. So as Stefan mentioned, uh, you have some areas where you have very low amounts of shared accommodation or some areas where there's a very low amounts of four bedroom properties and so what they often do is they take uh, data from other areas in Wales and try to apply it to to other areas where the data may be lower. So you're trying to take data that may not be uh, particularly relevant for the context and trying to apply it in in that particular area. But what we also found is that uh, we heard from quite a few local authority officers that landlords at the higher end of the market, those who are uh, trying to attract a more middle-class or, or professional uh, uh, market and have no real uh, interest in the LHA, because the data is collected manually, they have no incentive to submit that data. Um, you know, the, the process is essentially rent officers go up to the landlords and netting agents and say, can you please give us this data? And if, you know, they can't be bothered, then it doesn't get collected. So what we found is that those those, those landlords at the top end of the market are not submitting the data because they have no need to, because they're not affected by the LHA. So the data set that rent-ups are using immediately is weighted towards the lower end of the market because they're the people who are more influenced by the LHA. But added to that, there's also a lot of caveats uh, involved for what data they can actually use. And a big one is um, uh, they can't actually use properties that already have someone... Uh, who's in receipt of benefits and they can't use that uh, uh, in, in their data set. And this wipes out a huge portion of, uh, of the rental market and the data that they actually can use. So what we're left is, 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 a very, is, is what we regard as very insufficient for setting the LHA. Um, and it is quite likely that the LHA that is, uh, is um, created from this data set is very unlikely to be an accurate representation of the market area. And the 30 percent of that comes from that is, is, is it probably widely wider the mark in terms of providing support. Um, so not only is the data insufficient, but also we have this data set that we don't really know, you know, is it representative? Is it a good sample size? We just don't know. And that's one of our uh, recommendations is to make the data collection of, uh, of these rents be mandatory. So landlords have to submit it. So, we can say with certainty that this is the rental market picture. These are the rents that are in a, uh, in, within Wales and within each BRMA. This is the 30th percentile. Is it sufficient? If yes, then fantastic. If no, then we can reevaluate the LHA then.
0: Well, one thing you often hear horror stories of is people in receipt of uh, universal credit, specifically not being allowed to rent in the private rental sector. Um, did you encounter much of that when you were? Doing the research for this project, and and how bad do you think that situation still is for people?
1: Uh, I, I think it was it was it was mentioned by virtually everyone that we spoke to. So we did a lot of research, um, speaking to people with lived experience of trying to rent while well, while well, claiming housing benefit or universal credit. And virtually all of them said, you know, they 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 would go to a landlord or letting agent say, I'd like to rent your property, um, and as soon as the word um, benefits or, or or welfare came up it's it's you know they were dropped it's you know either you know some cases very overt saying oh you know i don't want someone with benefits other times it was just like oh you know there's too much demand um you know we'll keep you on our waiting list and they just never hear back and certainly what we're seeing as well is that there are a huge sway of barriers that are in place that i suppose do the job of landlords denying people um for them so you have quite often you have large deposits um so uh, what we found were quite a few properties had deposits in excess of one month's equivalent of rent, um, meaning that you have to fork out, out huge amounts of money just to get into the property in the first place, which in many instances someone with low income um, um, just doesn't have. But also we saw um, quite a lot of guarantors, uh, guarantor requirements. And in particular, guarantors was something that local authorities identified as being on, on the increase ever since they ruling to ban um, no uh, DSS within adverts uh, came in in 2020. From our point of view, we did see a lot of discrimination against uh, people who received the benefits, either you know overtly through you know just just the actions of the landlords, just blocking them completely, or through these barriers that were introduced. And you know, oftentimes it, it is a lot of it is based in stigma towards these uh, uh, these these tenants. You know, either through fear that they won't pay on time, or for fear that there may be antisocial behaviour. But also, what we saw is that frequently. If you're a buy-to-let landlord, the, the mortgage conditions of your uh, uh, that that you you bought property with often stipulate things like they must have a minimum, the tenant must have a minimum income, which will be above um, what they'll receive for universal credit, or they aren't allowed to rent out to people in benefits. Full stop. So there's a lot of different factors there that are preventing people on low income from being able to rent in the first place. Uh, and what we found is that when you take the properties that are fully covered by the LHA and subtract the ones with these kinds of restrictions, what you're left with is about 2.1% of the advertised market actually being um, available for people on uh, uh, on housing benefit, which is you know an in, insanely small amount of the market that's actually on offer. And virtually everyone that we spoke to was affected by some one or two or multiple of these restrictions.
2: And I think, you know, again, that feeds into the idea, you know, of people being pushed into properties then, you know, kind of um, and the impact that has on people as well who are in accommodation. So there's this fear that um, if I speak up, I know how difficult it is going to be to find somewhere else. So I will put up with the fact that my landlord hasn't fixed the leaking roof uh, for a few months. You know, there's that sort of impact as well. Um, And also. All of these requirements are trapping people within the homelessness system so one of the other things we heard as well is that if if um, a, a support worker from a, a homelessness shelter or, or something like that called up a landlord you know the, the person they were supporting was now ready to move into um, permanent accommodation by themselves you know they they, they they were ready to take on that tenancy but as soon as they would heard that someone had had help from the guard or someone like that they wouldn't be interested. So it's trapping people within, you know, it's trapping people within the homelessness system, and, and and putting extra pressure on public services as well, who aren't able to move people on so that we can support other people who need that help.
0: Steph, in your broader work on poverty, what what is the the energy gap meant for tenants and their quality of life?
2: Well, housing is the biggest cost that nearly all of us face. you know, so. Issues around housing costs are, um, you know, one of the biggest drivers of poverty, um, and, and and the emergence of the LHA gap, this, this issue that we're talking about here, has a huge bearing on people because if you haven't got the money, if you haven't dip in to other funds to cover your rent. You haven't got the money for your gas. You haven't got the money for your food. And it's you know, absolutely a root cause of a lot of the problems that we're seeing around poverty in Wales is that people don't have enough money to meet the housing costs and that, 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 that they have to meet to find a home.
1: I, I, I suppose as well, um, you've got a dimension with um, discretionary housing payments. I should probably give some context to that. So discretionary housing payments... Are a set of uh, temporary, short-term emergency payments that are given to people who are you know, receiving housing benefit or universal credit um, to help pay for um, certain costs that may accrue um, during their rental period. So, you know, if they need to cover arrears, or if they need a deposit, or if they need, uh, you know, just have housing costs that they need to cover, oftentimes the DHP will will help fill that gap. What we saw um, during last year is that uh, DHPs, not only the the number of DHPs that were uh, awarded increased, but also also the uh, value of each DHP DHP was also um, uh, uh, up as well from previous years. Now, unfortunately, DHPs are going to be cut by nearly a third across the UK very shortly. Local authorities are going to have a very uh, much diminished pot of funds to be able to support low-income tenants uh, when they uh, uh, encounter some of these, these 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 issues. So, the the problems that that, that Stefan uh, uh, mentioned, where you have you know rising costs, much greater financial pressure they're going to be made even worse so by this lack of uh, a DHP because local authorities are going to have to be much more uh, frugal with how they um, uh, issue DHPs. You know, the amount of support that is on offer for people is going to be greatly diminished as, as, as we go forward into the next financial year.
0: Thanks for that, Hugh. When, one question I did have is that um, there's a focus on a specific demographic in your report which is single adults under 35 with no dependents. Uh, just to Clarify this for the listeners. Why was this specific group affected more than others?
2: Yeah. So, um, the, the way that the system has been developed is that it's been deemed that if you're single and you're under 35, you don't need your own home. You are entitled to a shared accommodation, so a bedroom in another person's home. So, I guess it comes from the model of student housing or kind of young professionals moving to a city looking for somewhere to live. You know, that's, you can see where the idea has come from. But what that means is that if, if you fit that criteria, you're only entitled to that shared accommodation rate. It just really isn't that rental market. Um, it just doesn't really exist for people on low incomes to be able to find properties to share a room in um, You know that, that, that is covered by the shared accommodation rate. So what often happens is that low income, single people under 35 are you know, forced to live in a one bed flat or, something, uh, or a one bed house by themselves. But their rent is only, you know, is nowhere near an enough. And so the problems that we've been talking about is even greater because the amount of benefit you get is that much less than even the insufficient level that you would be getting if you were getting the one bedroom allowance if, if you were a bit older.
1: Um, I, I suppose there's also a particular problem with, with this uh, uh, um, age group in terms of um, what we heard from some local authorities as well was, um, you know, if they had a partner and a child with that partner and those, uh, that, that couple separated. Only one of them is actually entitled to a two bedroom house. The other one has to have a shared accommodation property. so it 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 means that you know if say you have a a child at twenty and you need to be in, in shared accommodation, shared accommodation applies up until you're thirty five. So you then have to try and juggle child care up until this up until when they're fifteen, all while trying to juggle it within, within shared accommodation, which obviously puts greater pressure on both parents and causes more issues uh, further down the line it's it's not just housing it's not just cost but there's a huge um, swave of issues that are caused by this insufficient lha
0: to what extent is the the root of this problem simply one of supply whether it be private rental or social housing to what extent would this problem be addressed if you just boosted provision
1: i mean i mean certainly from the social housing point of view you know, it, it, it's it's difficult to fully quantify what the demand is for social housing, but certainly from our research and our estimates, um, you know, the, the the demand for social housing is is, is way beyond what is actually uh, allocated in stock, and certainly in our view, we, you know, the private rental sector is definitely lacking in be able to, able to provide sufficient provision for low income renters, especially due to the, to the um, issues of security. So certainly. You know, if we could, you know, massively increase the construction of social housing, and if we could also, you know, look at more short-term uh, methods of increasing social housing, such as maybe perhaps do, looking at modular housing, or, or other means of sh- of quickly increasing stock, then we would probably see uh, a potential decrease in, in the amount of problems that are faced by households. Um, and certainly, there's an issue with the LHA itself. Um, so if you look at how many rental properties around Wales registered with uh, Smart Wales, it's around 200,000. Now, 30% of that would be 66,000, give or take. The, the numbers aren't precise, that uh, I'm, I'm quoting now. Now, there's roughly um, 80,000 people who are in receipt of housing benefit or, or the housing element of universal credit who live in the private rental sector. Even if you had this, uh, the LHA at the 30 percentile, and even if the data was perfect, and even if it was absolutely spot on, you still have about 20,000 people who are still out of pocket and still facing the issues that we had mentioned t- today. You know, in the short term, you know, you need to boost the LHA back to the 30 percentile, but you need to find adequate numbers of housing. Now, we, you know, our recommendation is is to try and increase social housing from that point of view and try and make sure that you have this secure, this safe, and this this stable accommodation readily available for those people who require it. And so, yeah, I, I suppose, you know, if we could increase the provision of social housing much quicker than we have done, it would, it would go a long way to solve some of the problems that we've, we've, we've seen.
0: Yeah,
2: just, just to add to that, I was gonna say, I think, you know, as who said, long-term social housing has to be the answer. It doesn't have LHA applied to it. You know, there's, there's a bedroom tax problem, but, you know, that's maybe a topic for an, another pod in its own right. Um, but, you know, there's more support available, the rents are cheaper. Though um, they are rising above inflation, um, or historically have been, um, which is another part of, uh, in its own right as well about what's going on with the way we're fin- financing social housing at the moment. But that's where the answer is. But it's going to take decades at current rates for it to actually provide the answer. So there is a need for a you know a serious conversation about you know how much are we putting into social housing? Could we, for example? look at devolving some of the housing benefit and the um, housing element of the universal cred- credit budget, for example, so that we use some of that money to fund the supply we need. You know, that's, um, you know, that's, that's a longer term thing that we could look at, but it's a conversation that maybe we should be having. Um, and, and, and also this question maybe about what do we do in the interim? So one of the things we've, um, you know, kind of the big chicken items that, that, that we've seen talked about in the cooperation agreement, is obviously around the idea of rent caps. You know that, That's something that we haven't looked in detail as part of this work, but I think one of the things that absolutely comes through this work is that if we're going to have that conversation and that is going to play a part of the answer, the focus has to be at the bottom end of the market. You know, The ten- temptation around rent caps is to put up an example of, outrageously high rent on a really crap looking flat somewhere in Cardiff and how dare they charge this much for this but the truth is that's kind of just so removed from the market it's not really what's causing the problem what, what's causing the problem for people on the lowest incomes is is these lower income rents so any conversation on rent caps we have or any other kind of measure we think about about increasing supply and, and affordability needs to be focused at the bottom of the market and not just at the top because otherwise we're not going to solve the problems that we've been talking about um, do, do, so far
0: we'll, we'll come back to the cooperation agreement in a sec step don't worry but i wanted to focus a little bit on the uh, one of the calls you make in the report which is the welsh home guarantee would you be able to explain what this is and how it work you
1: yeah so so, so it, it's i suppose it would be a, a package of measures um, um uh, to allow um uh, tenants uh, I suppose a guarantee and security if they if they uh, you know if they faced eviction and would give local authorities the tools in order to provide different uh, you know a level of security level of, of 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 guarantee that they'll be able to have some degree of uh, of, of housing if they did face eviction. I, I, I suppose, I suppose Stefan, do you want to elaborate a bit more on
2: that? Yeah, I, I think kind of the core of the idea is is that you know at at the moment there's a lot of support in different places. So kind of bringing it into a one-stop shop, I think is one of the key things that are in it. Um, and kind of giving more tools to local authorities when, you know, kind of so the guarantee we envisage being available for people who are in the homelessness system or who are at risk of falling into homelessness. So as he said, they've been an eviction, issued with an eviction notice, for example. So as we discussed, you know, some of the challenges we see at the moment is around people don't have guarantors to enable them to move into a house. That's a problem for a lot of low-income renters. It's particularly acute for migrant groups, for example, if you don't have um, you know, if you haven't been in the UK long enough to be able to to build that sort of network. And what what we think is that by by looking at creating that guarantee, the Welsh government could work with local authorities to give them the tools to um, and, and to act as that guarantor, or to give that reference to people as well, so that it's giving them extra tools and bringing them together, so that there's a kind of that more holistic package to help people um, into into accommodation and giving people a chance. Um, it's certainly, as a starting point, even if we can't resolve all the other problems, kind of in the immediate term at least it will help people facing the greatest challenge.
0: Thanks, Steph. So the last time we talked to you was around the time of the cooperation agreement was being formed, you mentioned rent caps there. Uh, what other measures do you think that were in that agreement and are within the powers of the Welsh Government that could tackle some of the aspects of this crisis? You see things like the discussion about a Welsh construction, a national construction company, perhaps the efforts in that could be put towards house building, for example, you know, is, is that kind of the action you'd like to see?
2: I think so, you know, as as with uh, a lot of people, I think we are still awaiting in detail um, or, on what um, quite a few of the stuff in the cooperation agreement actually means. But, you know, that's that's the sort of space where, we, where we'd, we'd like to see action. And I think, you know, in terms of what the Welsh government can do, to you know, so let's assume that the UK government is not going to take action and, Following today's um, spring statement, I think that's probably a fair bet um, for for the next 12 months at least. So, you know, let's think about what the Welsh Government can do. So either can try and top up the rents, try and make up some of that gap itself, or it can try and regulate them um, in terms of kind of bring down rents, um, you know, kind of in in the short uh, term. So in the original um, programme for government, we saw the Welsh Government talk about their um, leasing scheme. Um, which was me- meant to um, kind of um, bring more private sector landlords to work with Welsh governments. There's a need maybe to evaluate that to see how effectively that's working, um, you know, kind of seeing if we can put more money in, can we use that money more effectively to maybe provide more guarantees elsewhere rather than the upfront loans potentially, you know, kind of as a short-term quick fix to get more people into housing. As we said, rent controls, we've already touched on, you know, kind of making sure that that discussion focuses on people on the low income. So those are kind of the two things, major tools it has in that regard. And then, as you said, supply is absolutely the other one. So, you know, taking people out of the system. So if we're not going to get the system reformed at Westminster level, there's those measures we can take to make the system work less badly. And then there's kind of getting people outside the system entirely. And supply, boosting supply, particularly in the social
0: sector, is the way to do that. So Hugh, we've got local elections coming up in May. What do you think local authorities should be doing to address the housing crisis?
1: I I suppose the big thing, the big tool that local authorities have is the discretionary housing payment. Now, it it has been cut, unfortunately, and it will limit local authorities' uh, uh, ability to to provide support. But if you do look at the data, what you do find is that local authorities do not use their maximum allocation of the DHP in the first place. Um, Blaina, Gwen, and uh, uh, Anglesey are, are two particularly not great at using their DHP allocation. But there's only actually one. You know, local authorities have the the pot issued by the DWP, but they can also use uh, uh, they can also top up from their own funds. And so we've only we've only actually seen one local authority, which is Torvine, use the maximum allocation plus the maximum top up. Uh, and so that is one other way that the local, uh, Welsh government can uh, uh, come in, and that's to ensure that. They uh, local authorities have the amount of money uh, uh, sufficient to top up the DHP fund uh, uh, to the maximum. Yeah, another aspect, I suppose, I suppose uh, Stefan also mentioned was, you know, can they fill in uh, as guarantors? Can they uh, cover much more uh, uh, deposits to get people into housing in the first place? Um, and we are seeing different schemes around uh, 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 different local authorities trying to experiment with some of these different uh, uh, mechanisms. You know, it'd be exciting to see, um, you know, what success they find. There needs to be more imagination in in, in how they tackle things. And I think, you know, there's a lot that can be done uh, going forward. Yeah.
2: And and to build on what he was saying there as well, I guess there's, there's a practice element to this as well. So this is the sort of stuff that won't capture the headlines in any local authority election, but really makes a difference to people. So one of the things, for example, that we were interested in and had discussions about was the extension of the minimum eviction notice period to six months actually essentially what's happening is that we' you know we've had a two-year trial of that as a result of covid in a sense um and whilst that that extension of the notice period could offer really huge benefits to people who are you know kind of affected by the issues we've spoken about um, um tonight there's a risk if practice doesn't change it won't be manifested in the best possible way so we've heard of for example of local authorities where someone comes to them and says, right, I've just been issued with, a, uh, with an eviction notice from my landlords, can you help me? And they just turn around and say, well, come back a month before you're evicted and then we'll help you at that point. So it's about changing that culture and, and also making sure that the resources are there as well, that local authorities have the resources, so that that, that help begins on day one when that notice comes, because that maximises the possibility of you being able to find something more affordable and something suitable in the longer term for that for that tenant.
0: So, Steph, you mentioned today that we're doing this the, on the same day that we had the spring statement, as well as the rather worrying announcement that inflation has hit a thirty-year high of over six percent. Were there any measures announced today that you think could actually make a real difference in alleviating poverty?
2: Um, if I'm being frank, not really. I think, in particularly towards kind of the group that's most affected here. So, you know, the increase in the national insurance threshold. Will make a difference to some workers, um, but you know most low-income workers don't pay national insurance, so that, that's not going to help um, you know the lowest-paid workers, and it's certainly not going to help um, people who are on benefits who don't work um, um, for, for various reasons or uh, because they're unable to work. So it's not it's not going to be of much help to people in that circumstances. A cut to fuel duty will help some but, you know, for, for, for an awful lot of people, you know, the help is going to, you know, disproportionately benefit those on the highest incomes rather than the lowest incomes. And there wasn't really anything in there um, but some discretionary pots of cash, which we will see a banner consequential from um, come to Wales, hopefully. But, you know, there wasn't really much in there in terms of um, kind of looking at the housing issues we've discussed tonight and also kind of increasing benefits and pensions in, in, in line with inflation. So I think it's, it, there wasn't an awful lot in there for that, or the poorest people, the people who are going to feel the pinch more than most.
0: Yeah, for those who don't know, I mean, there was an announcement, wasn't there, that the benefits would be going up, was it 3.1% or something? And then inflation was announced at 6.2% this morning. And that was February's stats. That's before most of the worst impact of, we'll feel from the war in Ukraine. So it's going to be all year up by that, isn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because the, the benefit um, rate is set by um, inflation back in September. And obviously, things have moved on an awful lot since then. And there was an opportunity today maybe to show a bit of flexibility and to to react to that. But obviously, that wasn't taken. So as, as you said, any increase is going to be more than eaten up by the added inflation that we're going to see over the coming months.
0: Uh, I just want to say thanks to both of you for coming on uh, to talk to us this evening. Uh, The Bevan Foundation Report, Wales Housing Crisis, Making the LHA Work for Wales, is out now, and we'll include it in the show notes for this episode. But if people want to hear more from you, where can they go to find you on Twitter, Hugh?
1: Uh, I I don't use it uh, nearly as much as I I, I should do, Um, but uh, 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 at Hugh Koken, uh, which is um, H-U-G-H-K-O-C-A-N, that's where you can find me on Twitter.
2: Great.
0: Steph? Yeah,
2: and I'm um, at Steph H Bevan's.
0: And the Bevan Foundation one, for those who don't uh, know?
2: Yes, I should have mentioned that. that's um, at <laughs> Bevan Foundation.
0: The Steph, thank you very much. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please do not forget to find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Here Ith Pod, and on our brand new website, www.walespolitics.com. Thank you for listening to Heerreith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe,
1: rate and review.